Okay, we are wrapping up our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Um, I have loved it. It has been uh, a deep joy, and I have this sense of like, oh man, we didn't, we didn't get to do all that I, uh, all, we didn't get to swim into every depth, but it's been, it's been awesome. Both, both things are true. It has been wonderful, and it kind of leaves me wanting more. Um, we call it our series Reframing Reality, and so our hope, your, your pastors and staff and elders hope that it reframed your reality, that it uh, gave you a different way to see uh, the unseen and unfelt and untouched realities of the present moment. Like there is more that's going on to your world than you can see, taste, touch, smell. Am I missing one? Or here? Like there, there, there's more than you know going on. There are realities that are unseen to you that Jesus is currently on the throne. He's currently being worshiped. He currently uh, is, is, is working to make all things new and one day we'll do that. And there's also these unseen realities of the future that like we don't know uh, the day or the hour, but one day there are some things to come. And that's how we're, that's how we're wrapping up our series. These last three weeks in our series, we're looking at the end of time that King Jesus, most of Revelation tells us about the reality of the way things are. There are a few moments in Revelation that tell us the reality of things to come. And it shows us this, not in a predictor sense, not in a decoding sense, like who is the Antichrist and what does Israel mean and all that. That's not what Revelation is about. What Revelation is about is there is a day that's coming and what John has shown in Revelation is some realities about that day in the day that is to come. So we've looked at the paradise of Jesus over these last few weeks, some unseen realities of the paradise to come, that one day Jesus will return to dwell with his people, one day Jesus will return with the heavenly city of Jerusalem, and, he, and that's just metaphorical for it's going to all be bliss and the world will be restored and all these sad things will come untrue one day. That, that day is coming. And so today we close out our series by looking at one last reality of the things to come, the last bit of the paradise of Jesus that is to come. So uh, it's been hinted at, but now we'll spend uh, our final time together talking and, and diving into this, this reality of things to come. So Revelation 19, verses six through nine, I, I edited what is being read, so you're gonna have more in your slides than what I'm reading, because I'll decide what we read around here, okay? Um, but Revelation 19, verses six through nine, and then we're going to skip ahead to the last page of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses 17 through 21. So Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was, granted to her to clo- it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then skipping ahead, last page, last paragraph of this book and of scripture itself, Revelation 22, starting in verse 17. We just sang this a few minutes ago. We literally just sang these exact words in our opening song. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. Verse 20, he who testifies, that's Jesus, to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So, after an entire book of apocalypse, after the, this crazy apocalyptic literature of heaven being pulled back and John getting this crazy vision full of symbolism and numbers and beasts and, 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 and all, that's, all that we've seen, this crazy book of apocalypse ends with John saying these words, come Lord Jesus. Some translations say, come quickly Lord Jesus. And Jesus says in our final passage, I am coming soon. So here's the, the book closes, this crazy book with all the visions and all the symbolism and all the metaphor. This crazy book ends with the, the, the viewer of this book, the, the one who got this vision to begin with, John himself, with an eagerness, with an anticipation, with a longing, with a pining, with a crying out, come Lord Jesus. And Jesus on the other side saying, behold, I am coming soon. So to help complete that sentiment of this pining, this anticipation, this longing for things to come, to help kind of complete that reality, we're given this image of this heavenly thing that we're waiting on, and we're given this image over and over again in the book, but it comes to a culmination as the book closes in its final passage. We're given an image of a heavenly reality that helps us understand this kind of longing and pining and waiting and eager anticipation. And here's what we're given. We're given the image of a wedding season. Look with me again at verse 22, 17, and then we're gonna skip back to uh, chapter 19, and just, just so you know where I'm getting this, I'm not making this up. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 17, again, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. The bride, what bride is he talking about, and what is she saying, what is she inviting all who would listen to come to? What's, what's, what's this bride talking about and who is this bride? And then Revelation 19 verses seven through nine says this. You can throw this back up there. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Here's what Revelation says over and over. In chapter 21, we looked at it last week, the holy city of Jerusalem descends down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. This is over and over and over again, all throughout scripture. This is what we're told and Revelation just puts it on steroids for us. Is that at the end of time, there's going to be a cosmic wedding when King Jesus is going to return and marry his bride, the church. The culmination of all of history, all who belong to Jesus who are headed towards this day, what we are waiting on and what we're headed towards is a wedding day. That day, the day of the Lord, the awesome and awful day of the Lord that the prophets speak about and Jesus speaks about, yes, it includes a judgment day, but that's not all that it includes. It also includes a wedding day. The day of the Lord that scripture talks about is a wedding day. Do you know that if you belong to Jesus, you're headed for a wedding and a wedding feast? Which means that in the time that we're in now, okay, so that's where we're headed. 
Here's what that means for now, that what the church embodies now, the season of life that the church is in now is a season of engagement. The church, the bride of Christ is waiting on her wedding day. Now, I have performed many weddings. I'm a professional wedding doer. And, and here's what I have seen over and over and over again, that from the moment of proposal and engagement, that engagement begins, and the moment of wedding day, that time period, however long it lasts, the time between proposal and wedding day can be brutal. Even if everybody behaves, and even if everybody gets along, and even if the family's joining together, everything's good, and even if the bride and the groom don't fight over flowers and bridesmaids' colors, like even if all of it goes smoothly, here's what makes engagement season brutal, is there's this thing out there. There's this day that's coming that you, that you both are and everybody is longing for and you're working towards and you're trying to plan and pay for and make happen and all this stuff is going on, and yet at the end of all that is this day that you can't speed up. So here's what engagement season means. You are signing up for a season of waiting, which is why I will offer couples often, hey, we can end the waiting. I can marry you in my office right now. Done it many times. Open for business if you'd like to come do that. Because um, the waiting is brutal. The, the waiting can be excruciating. And even if everything's great, but then even if stuff's not great, you throw in money and you throw in insecurities and you throw in sin and you throw in expectation and you throw families trying to join together. You throw in all of this and you got yourself a good old fashioned excruciating season of waiting. That's the season that the Bible says the church is living in right now. There's a wedding day out there and it's not here yet, which means church, we're in engagement season. So two things we're going to look at as we close out this book. As we try to wrap our heads and our hearts around this reality that we are headed towards a wedding day. So two things, waiting for wedding day and wanting the wedding day. Waiting for wedding day and wanting the wedding day. So first, waiting for wedding day. It's important to understand some first century customs surrounding weddings and marriages. Marriages in the first century were arranged marriages got four daughters myself trying to bring it back. Love to reinstitute the arrangement of marriages. But, but here's, here's what that meant. It didn't mean you, you maybe would have known the one you were arranged to be married. Um, but even though you were arranged to be married and you were maybe marrying a stranger, you still had some say. And so the, the, the parents of bride and groom would get together and there were business decisions involved in that. And this would be good for our family heritage and institutions and all this stuff. Even when you got to the day of engagement, you could still walk away. So here's how it would work. A groom-to-be, the one who's been chosen to be the groom in this arranged situation, would go to the bride's house. And they were maybe meeting for the first time, maybe not, but they were meeting for the first time in this context. And so the, the groom would go to the bride and say, I would like to be betrothed to you. Our parents have selected this. And he would have a cup of wine. And he would hand her the cup of wine, and if she was saying, yes, I will marry you, she would take a sip of the wine. That was her saying, I do, I will marry you, yes, yes, yes. The moment that happens, he then takes off and goes back to his own house where he was raised, where he lived, and he would begin adding on a room to his own house. And he would add on that room, and that would be the room that he would live in with his wife and his family. And they would begin to add on, him and his father would work, and his father would be inspecting the work. And only when the father said the work is ready, could he go back to get the bride. Here's what would happen. He would go back across the village or back across the town to the bride's house, most usually in the evening after dusk. And he would go there to the bride's house where she was waiting with her bridesmaids. 
She's waiting with the excitement of the wedding party. And these bridesmaids were supposed to have lamps ready to be lit so that the moment the groom shows back up at the house, they can turn on their lamps and they can walk back through the village or back through the city and light up the town. And everybody joins the procession as the bride and groom are heading back to the groom's house so the wedding and the party can begin. And then many times it would last for like a week or two weeks. Jesus shows up at a wedding, John chapter two, and right as the party's about to end, he brings out the best wine so the party can keep going. Like these, these were massive celebrations. And so everyone in this situation, as this engagement has happened, the husband's building, everyone back at the bride's house, not knowing when the groom's gonna come, here's what that whole season meant for the bride and her friends and her family. You are going to be waiting a lot. You're not gonna know. When's the groom coming? No one knows the day or the hour when the groom's gonna show back up and say it's time to come back and get married. What's interesting for us to know is that in this setting, um, as everyone is waiting for the groom's return, as everyone is anticipating when is the groom gonna show back up, when is the father gonna release him from his adding on to the house to come back and get his bride. If you back up to the part of the story and of the tradition where the groom goes and offers the cup of wine and says, will you be my bride? If the bride says yes, she takes a sip. Maybe she needs a big sip. She takes a sip. The moment she has said yes to him, before the young man would depart to go back and start building and preparing, here's what he would turn to his bride-to-be and say to her. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. If those words sound familiar, those are straight from the mouth of Jesus in John 14 in the Last Supper in the upper room. Jesus is at a Passover meal. He's just served his friends wine. And as they're sipping the wine, what does he say to them? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. My friends, this was Jesus's engagement speech to his own. This was Jesus's engagement speech to you. Now here's what Jesus knows, because he knew and they would all have heard those words that way. Here's what Jesus knows the moment he is telling his disciples in the upper room and he's telling the church and all who would read that, that they are now engaged to Jesus. Here's what he knows. You're signing up for a season of waiting. He knows that in this season of waiting, you may get cold feet. He knows that you may wonder if he's ever coming back again. Like imagine yourself in that culture in the first century. Imagine yourself as a bride. The groom has come to you with the cup of wine and then he goes back to his father's house. The groom can't text you and say, hey, it's just a few more days, I'm almost done. Like he's not keeping you up to date. What your experience is as a bride in that setting is this, I'm waiting and in my waiting, I'm gonna have some hard times. Like how many brides do you think wondered in the waiting? Like, I mean, how big is this room that he's building? Like how long does it actually take him to do this? Like it's been a week, it's been two weeks, it's been a month. Like I, I, bet, I bet he's moved on. I, I bet he's just, did I hear him right? Like I think it was a proposal, like I'm pretty sure. Maybe... Maybe he's found another bride. Maybe in the building project, he got distracted and found another bride and his parents thought someone else would be a better fit. Maybe I'm not his bride anymore. Maybe this is all a sham and maybe none of this is real. 
maybe he's moved on, maybe he's forgotten, maybe, this, maybe he didn't have enough building supplies and it's just over. How many times do you think the bride in this season of waiting began to doubt what her groom was doing? And Jesus says, the New Testament would say, church, you're in a season of engagement, which means you're in a season of waiting and waiting is hard. Waiting during engagement seasons is incredibly difficult. It's part of the reason why this analogy and this metaphor is used over and over and over again in the New Testament to talk about the relationship of Jesus with his bride, the church. It's trying to set us up well for the expectation that this season is going to have challenges. It's going to kick up the dust. And there will be seasons where you're going to wonder if any of this is real. And you're going to be wondering, is there actually a wedding day? And is waiting on wedding day actually worth it? And is my groom even doing anything? And did he actually say, was coming back. Well, how long does it take him? Like, when is he going to just make this happen? Do you know that in the life of a waiting for wedding day Christian, of a waiting for wedding day church, that doubt and uncertainty are normal? That's partially why this metaphor is given to us. There will be days where you wonder if you heard the groom. There will be days if you struggle to want to keep on waiting for him to come and get you. There will be days where you aren't sure about all of this, to which the Bible would say to you, welcome to engagement season. (laughs) That's what an engagement season is like. Welcome to waiting. Welcome to not always being sure about Jesus. In Luke 7, John the Baptist, like the greatest Christian ever, even though Jesus says least in the kingdom of heaven is better than, is greater than John the Baptist, but we know John the Baptist, like he was kicking in the womb when he met Jesus. He didn't even meet him and he's like, he's, he's better than us, okay? He's like preparing the way for Jesus. He's calling Herod out. He baptizes Jesus. Like can you imagine? Like he, he baptizes the son of God. He's, he's like the greatest, even though Jesus says he's not. He's the greatest. John the Baptist is in jail. He gets thrown in jail by Herod. In Luke chapter seven, there's this little, little moment and it's very telling. John the Baptist, who is so sure his, the call on his life is to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And then he meets Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. While John's in jail, do you know what he does? He sends some messengers of his own, some disciples of his own, and says, hey, jail's been really hard and really lonely. It's really dark and wet and cold in here. Will you go to Jesus and ask him, like, are you really the one? Says John doubted. It's actually the same thing that's said of Thomas later on after the resurrection, doubting Thomas. We should call it doubting John the Baptist, but we, Thomas gets a bad rap. Like John's in jail and suddenly he's not so sure anymore. Suddenly he needs confirmation of, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really who you say you are? Is this really what's happening? Like I need to know. And Jesus very kindly and kind of uh, uh, decodingly sends back to John a message that says, Hey, tell John in jail uh, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the sick are healed. And Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah that talks about when the Messiah is here, these things will happen. Jesus lovingly and maybe cruelly leaves out the line in that quote about, and the prisoners will be set free. He doesn't tell John that part uh, because John's not going to get set free. His head's going to get set free, but he's not going to get set free. Like he's, it's not going to happen for him. But here's what, here's what, here's what John, think about this, John the Baptist in the waiting, started to doubt. Not so, I don't know, like I think, I think it's the one, but it's really hard to keep waiting. And Jesus, if it really is you, what are you doing? And if there really is a kingdom that's coming, why don't you hurry up and bring it? Like, how long can it take you? Like, why do I have to wait in this prison cell the whole time? 
Welcome to not always being sure. But here's what the Bible would also say. In the waiting is the place where hope is born. Welcome to what it means to be a people who are waiting for something glorious to come. Welcome to a season where there is something over the horizon of your life that isn't true yet, but you are able to hope in it because you believe the glory of what it's to come. That only happens in waiting. Christians, maybe, maybe this is the number one differentiator between Christians and the watching world is that Christians are able to be a people who are able to wait well. We wait and we, know, we don't wait with apathy and we wait, we're able to wait because we know what we're waiting on. There is a wedding day and my groom said he's coming for me. And as we wait, the waiting is meant to in us, like this bride at her house waiting on the husband to come back and get her. This waiting in us is meant to awaken our longing for that day more and more, which is the second point. We're not just waiting on the wedding day, we are wanting the wedding day. Certainly it's been said before, it's true that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Jesus, every day you don't return to come and marry us, it makes me long for it and want it more. That's true for the Christians as we await our groom. We should be the people, like John here, after this whole apocalyptic journey through Revelation, John ends this whole book with the sighing and the pining and the groaning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can't wait for you to get here. We so want this wedding day. We so want this to happen. We so want the end of death. We so want the end of suffering and injustice. We long for you to return, Jesus, come quickly. Bud Wood uh, founded a home in Wisconsin called the Shepherd's Home back in the 1960s. It was a home, uh, a residential home for boys and girls with developmental disabilities. And he gave them, you know, a residential environment where they could learn and grow and be trained and get job skills and be loved on and have a permanent home. No one wanted them, but Bud Wood did. So we called it Shepherd's Home, the Shepherd's Ministry Home. And every week, John preached the gospel to these kids with disabilities, and he preached them. He told them about the grace of Jesus for sinners. He told them about one day that this King Jesus would come back and bring them home. He told them that one day, all things would be made right again. One day, a local pastor from the Chicago area, they supported Bud in the Shepherd's Home ministry, and they were, he went up to Wisconsin to visit them, to kind of see, hey, show me the ministry. We send you money. We'd love to kind of see what else we can do for you. And the pastor's visiting this home, and he's asking about the programs and the ministry, and in the middle of it, of, of the pastor kind of saying, hey, we'd love to kind of help more. What can we do? Bud abruptly interrupts the pastor, this pastor says when he tells the story. Hey, Joe. Thank you for the money. Do you know what our biggest maintenance problem is here at Shepherd's Home? Pastor said, um, I have no idea. And Bud said, dirty windows. We have to clean our windows every day. To which the pastor thought was strange. Like, okay, thank you. And Bud could tell the pastor's not quite getting it. So he says, let me show you something. So he pulls him, he brings him into one of the classrooms. And he says, see those windows every, over there? Every day we have to clean those windows because every day our kids press their hands and their faces against the windows because they're looking to the sky to see if today might be the day that Jesus will return for them and take them to his home where they will be healed and complete finally. Our kids smash their faces against the window every day looking to see, is today, is today the day? 
Is today the day that Jesus is going to come get me? Is today the day that Jesus is going to come and marry his bride? Is today the day where all will be healed? Dirty windows. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to wait with eager anticipation. That's what it looks like to want the wedding day. Is today the day? Is today the day my groom is coming for me? So how come we don't dirty up our windows? How come we're not like that? How come we don't, we don't smash our faces looking to the skies, pleading with Jesus? Jesus, is this, is this the day where you come and get me now? Why don't we um, long for wedding day like that, like those precious kids from the shepherd's home? Well, most of us think that smashing our face against windows to look for your groom is silly or childish. Uh, but I assure you, that if you were smashing your face against the window, if you were longing for Jesus with your fingerprints and your nose prints, if you were smashing your face looking, Jesus is today the day, I promise you, it's, it's not too much to want from Jesus. Like in other words, like if you think, hey, I, I really want that day to come, but I mean, it's gonna be okay, right? Like, or, or if you think, hey, I really want that day, but is it possible that that day could satisfy all of my deepest longings? I promise you, you smashing your face against the window, you have not wanted too much from your groom. Usually why we don't smash our face against the windows, hypothetically speaking, is because we want too little from him. Like if you, if you, if you, push all of your desire chips in, if you, tr if you shove in, I'm all in on the wedding day, finally satisfying my deepest longings and finally eradicating death and injustice and finally being the bliss that I've been promised. If you cash all of your chips in and put it in on that, I promise you it won't disappoint you. We're afraid that it would. We're afraid it won't satisfy us and we're afraid that this wedding feast to come won't actually deliver on the forever bliss that it promises us. We're, we're too afraid. We're too prideful, we're too afraid, we're too ashamed, we're too wounded. There's no way it could handle all that I want. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are half-hearted creatures, and it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. I promise you, if you cash your chips on on the wedding, cash your chips chips in on the wedding day to come, you will not be disappointed. But if we hear of this wedding day, this kingdom to come. And we think something along the lines of this, like, man, that's great. Uh, wedding day to come, that sure sounds better than hell. So I guess I kind of want that wedding day. But man, I would really love to, little, I would love to live a little bit more on earth, right? Like YOLO, right? Wrong. Not YOLO. Not you only live once. Like if, if we have this, even this twinge of, man, I can't wait for my future cosmic wedding day, but I'd really love to have a wedding day here first. <laughs> or, or like, I can't wait for wedding day, but I'd love to see Paris before I die. It's like, you have no idea what your longings are about. You don't have a clue of what that day is promising you and what it is that you actually long for. Or if you feel silly about being a person who would smash their faces against the window while you wait, please know this. Please know this. Waiting and watching and wanting is what it means to be a Christian. It's like the, the defining thing. We're watching and waiting and wanting for that day. And if you've suffered, you know that. 
Like if you've made all the money and it still hasn't delivered, if you've had your heart ripped out, if, you're, if you've been so close to death, you can still taste it and smell it. If all the longings have been, if the hope deferred has made your heart sick, you know you want, you're not too embarrassed to smash your face against the window. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, watching and waiting and wanting for the day. Come quickly, Jesus, that John says. There's a reason why it's the end of the Bible, because it should be what every Christian who reads the Bible goes on saying. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, should be the most repeated sentence of every Christian in the world. Come quickly, come quickly, come quickly. We long for the day of your return. We want this day to happen. And I know that some of us were raised adjacent to or in the church, and we've been told that when we ponder the return of Jesus, this wedding day, we've been told that this impending coming back of Jesus is meant to create in us a look busy Christianity. Like you don't, you don't want to look idle. Jesus might be coming back and what are you going to do if you come back and you're doing nothing? Or, you know, Jesus might be coming back. You don't want to be at some like R-rated movie when Jesus comes back. Like that's lame. That's not what Revelation is trying to form in us. Revelation is not trying to form in us a look busy Christianity. Revelation is trying to form in us a looking Christianity. Like what are you looking for? What are you longing for? What are you waiting for? We're to be a watching and waiting and wanting people. We're to look over the horizon of the world to come with eager longing. And here's, here's what you'll find. Here's what you'll find if you're constantly smashing your face against the window, looking down the road from your house, waiting to see if your groom is coming yet. Here's what you'll find. With your imagination of your heart by faith, here's what you'll see. You'll find that you're not the only one who is waiting and wanting this wedding day to happen. Three times in the final 12 verses of Revelation, like the final two paragraphs of Revelation, Three times in 12 verses, Jesus himself says with red letters, behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. And he doesn't say it with a scowl on his face. He says it with a longing in his eyes. Behold, I am coming soon. As in, Jesus is eager for wedding day too. Your groom can't wait to marry you. That all the longing and the window face smashing that we ought to be doing, do you know you have a groom that's adding on to his father's house? If you could see his face while he labors, you would see one who can't wait for this day to happen too. Do you know how much Jesus can't wait to marry you? Do you know how this groom feels about you? Do you know that in the waiting for wedding day, you're not the only one who's waiting for it? And all the excruciating engagements that I get to do and walk in. It's a joy. Uh, you know a thread I see often, and, and not like perfectly and all the time, but you know a thread I see often? That when seasons get tumultuous and the engagement hits walls or speed bumps, the only thing, that, the only thing that makes grooms stick it out, do you know the only thing that makes grooms stay pressed in it's not which flower arrangements are being picked. It's not what are the bridesmaids dresses and it's not what are we serving for dinner. Those things is not what the groom is focused on. Some brides wish grooms would be more focused on them, but it's not, what groom, it's not what keeps grooms pressed in. You know what keeps grooms locked in to a hard engagement season? 
The only thing that makes a season worth it is the bride that is to be theirs one day. That's it. The bride is the focus of the groom and it's what keeps him locked in. That's what the Bible says about how your Jesus feels about you. He's building a room. He's adding on to his father's house and he can't wait to finish it so that he can come and be with you. John 17, after Jesus' engagement speech, then there's two chapters on the Holy Spirit, the helper that he'll send. And then John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a really intimate prayer between Jesus and his father. You know what he says over and over and over again in that high priestly prayer? He's about to go give his life away. He says, Father, I long for the ones that you have given me that I may be with them. I I know I have to go die and defeat death and I know there's gonna be an engagement season of waiting, but I just wanna be with them. That's what I want. That's what all this is for anyway. That your groom doesn't hold your sin against you. In fact, because of what he's about to go do in that high priestly prayer the next morning, because of what he's about to do, because of his bloodshed, here's what it actually means. He has washed you of your sin and he doesn't hold your sin against you anymore because you hear the thought Jesus can't wait to be with you and you go yeah but not like the real me like we can't imagine Jesus with longing eyes looking at us and here's what Jesus says I've paid for all of those sins past present and future I don't hold them against you anymore I bore them so that now here's what Ephesians 5 says Ephesians 5 is another incredible passage about the relationship of our groom to us us being his bride it says that he now by the washing of us with his blood he now did that that he might present us to himself on wedding day radiant without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing that he would go I have washed you and made you white I can't wait to see you again And I don't care who you are or who you've slept with. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what kind of unfaithful fiance you've been to him. I don't care about the sin that you can't forgive yourself for. I don't care about the habits you can't kick or the evil that you have wrought with your own two hands. You are the bride that is to be his. And that's what keeps him locked in in engagement season. So in my line of work, like I said, I have this other privilege where most, most men, not all men, but most men, when they have this moment of, of seeing their bride kind of turn the corner on wedding day and, and come down the aisle, most men only get to see that one time in their life. Where there's this moment, and, and, it, and it's unbelievable. Now, this bride isn't walking towards me, but this, the viewing point, like down the aisle to see a bride in all of her radiance, it is spectacular, Like it's unbelievable to watch this bride walk to her longing eyes husband and get to see this this reality over and over again. I get to be like first-hand witness. Like I get to see it, this angle coming. You know what's true about every single wedding I've ever done? Like every single one, like without exception. And what's even more marvelous about this reality I'll tell you about when you compare this reality or, or apply this reality to the wedding day to come where, our, where we will walk down the aisle to meet our groom one day, here's what's true about every single wedding I've ever done. All eyes are on the bride, especially the grooms. Like no, no groom in history, 
No groom in history, like when the bride turns the corner and or the doors are open and he gets to see her in all of her radiance. No groom in history, because if he did do this, there wouldn't be a wedding anymore. No groom ever goes, all the, you know, everyone's rise and the bride comes in, all eyes turn on the bride, especially the grooms. No groom in history goes, hey, 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 hey. Some eyes up here would be nice. Like, I would love to, you know, like, I got dressed up too. Like, no, no, no groom has ever done that because the groom is enamored with his bride. The groom is obsessed with this moment. I have waited for this day and I have longed for you to come and be mine. And I want to be with you. Get down the aisle to me. She is spotless and radiant to him. And the groom wants everybody to behold his bride. That's true of Jesus too. This is your groom. That yes, 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 even though all power and glory and wisdom and might and dominion are his forever and ever, like it's all about him, it's all for him. All of the world is, yes, all of it is his. Do you know what Jesus does with that seat of glory and dominion and power and honor and might? Do you know what he does from that place? He says, yeah, and I wanna use all of it to marry my bride. I wanna make that day happen. That on our wedding day, he will say to the watching world, behold, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, at last, at last, the one that I have waited for, the one that I have bled for, the one that I have longed for, let the feast begin. Midtown, let us, let us be a people who wait, let us be a people who want this wedding day to come. For behold, your groom is coming soon. Let's pray. Jesus, it is hard to imagine that you want wedding day too. That you have gone to prepare a place for us and you will bring home with you when you come, when you restore all things, when you end death, when you come to dwell with us. There will be the great wedding feast, the great supper of the Lamb. And so give us the ability, we pray, Lord Jesus, to please, 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 Look to that day with eager longing to please, please, please smash our faces against the window in, in, in pining hopes that one day we will be wed to you. We pray, Jesus, you give us the eyes of faith to imagine that day to come. We pray, Jesus, you give us the, the courage to dare to believe that you want this wedding day more than we do. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.